Thanks, Kendi, and good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning as we continue in this series entitled uh, Soul, uh, Soil Care for the Soul uh, as we're working on uh, the subject of spiritual disciplines. So please join me in prayer. This morning, we're looking at the disciplines of simplicity and generosity. Father, we'd like to thank you that as we gather within these walls, that you are in every way the source of all good things, the source of every good gift, the air we breathe, the food we eat, the water we drink, the life that we enjoy. Thank you. I pray, Father, that even as we have received freely, you would so move in us, so equip us, that we might be people stepping into the life for which we're created, a life of generosity. And toward that end, we trust that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning, and we'll thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My question this morning to uh, provoke you a little bit is to simply ask this, how are you doing spiritually? And it's a rhetorical question. Please don't start talking right now or anything like that. If you just think about the question for just a minute, how are you doing spiritually? Uh, your answer will depend on, to use business terms, the metrics uh, by which you define your spiritual well-being. And this becomes problematic for many of us. So I'd like to talk about the metrics at the outset for just a minute because the proving ground of our faith it often defaults to a list of our beliefs and certain activities. In other words, believe in the deity of Christ, believe in the atonement, believe uh, that Jesus rose from the dead, believe in the virgin birth, go to church, join a small group, serve at a committee, stay sober, be faithful to your wife, put some money in the plate, done. I'm, I'm knocking it out of the park, right? However, there's a problem. The problem is the proving ground of our discipleship ultimately is, it has little to do with those things. God's interested in ultimately how we present the reality of the indwelling Christ to other people. Relationships ultimately are what matter. In other words, how we treat our neighbor, how we hold our sexuality, uh, how we view our enemies, the extent to which bitterness or fear or greed govern our daily choices. And of all these things that are relational in nature, that are kind of a proving ground for our faith, the prophets of the Old Testament would say the most telling thing is our relationship with our money and our possessions. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49 is where uh, the prophet Ezekiel critiques Israel and says to Israel, you're worse than Sodom, but the critique of Sodom that Ezekiel offers is this. Sodom and her sisters had arrogance, abundance, ease, and neglected the poor and needy. That's powerful. Arrogance. They thought they were the greatest nation on earth. Abundance. Immense material wealth. Ease. A lot of free time. And yet, in spite of all of those blessings, neglected the poor and needy. Yeah, yeah, this is what I hear. Old Testament. But now we're a New Testament church. Well, welcome to the New Testament. Here's the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, the one thing I wanted to do was care for the poor. The one thing I wanted to do was care for the poor. So, how are you doing spiritually? In the end, the proving ground, I don't have my wallet with me, otherwise I'd pull it out. My phone is just as good. In the end, the proving ground of our faith is our relationship to our material possessions and, and our capacity to live with open hands as people of generosity. And this is very difficult for us because 
In a capitalistic marketing society, I'm quoting now from a book entitled Growth Fetish by Clive Hamilton, who's an Australian economist. He says, in our economies, in the West, we seek fulfillment, but settle instead for abundance. Prisoners of plenty, we have the freedom to consume instead of enjoying God's calling and finding our place in the world or peace or intimacy. Our lives have been defined by consumption. And then he says in this book, his more famous quote, uh, this is the West, people buying things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. Welcome to our world. I'll say it again because you all loved it, right? People buying things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. We're stuck there very often. But the good news this morning is that there's a way out. And to, to, to get out, we want to look this morning at a threefold redemptive progression. Threefold redemptive progression. We see a downward spiral uh, from our obsession with more. We see the turning point as soon as we can say the word enough, and then we enjoy the upward spiral of generosity. Downward spiral, more. Turning point, enough. Upward spiral, generosity. That's where we're going. We begin with the downward spiral of more. Uh, it, I'm gonna read James chapter four for you just for a moment, because this gets to the heart of just about every human ailment. I mean, we turn the news on in the morning, or we listen to it, or we look at it online, or something like that, and we're worried about our world, and uh, James pinpoints the source of all the relational ailments that exist in the world. And this is what he says. What's the source of every quarrel and conflict among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? And then listen to this. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Done. What are the, what's the source of every problem in the world? you want and don't have. And you see it all through the Old Testament. You see it all through the Bible. Cain wanted approval. His brother got approval. So what did Cain do? Killed his brother. David wanted his neighbor's wife. So what did David do? Took his neighbor's wife, killed her husband. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21. Naboth refused to sell it to him, so what did uh, Ahab's wife Jezebel do? She killed Naboth so that uh, uh, Ahab could have the vineyard that he wanted. The, and listen, the entire history of empires is rooted in wanting what you don't have. The Assyrians wanted more, so they expanded. The Babylonians wanted more, so they expanded. The Medes and Persians wanted more, so they expanded. The Greeks wanted more, so they expanded and expanded and expanded. The Romans wanted more. The Austro-Hungarian Empire wanted more. Colonists heading to this very country wanted more. Hitler wanted more. Everybody wants more. And when they want more, they expand. And it's not, it's not just a, like a, a mining of minerals. Lives are at stake. People are involved, do you see? So people want more, they expand. And we who gather here, probably, most of us, moralize about the evils of empire expansion. We're threatened by it. We, don't, we think it's wrong, and, and, and we're threatened by it. And some moralize about the evils of an economic system built on the, the necessity of expansion. But it's vital to see here, at the outset, 
The problem is not the system. The problem is not capitalism or communism or socialism or advertising or colonialism or empire building. Those are, those are problems, but those are downstream presenting problems. If you go to the headwaters and you ask, what's the source of all the problems? The headwaters is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, uh, one of the Ten Commandments, and the command is, is, is very simple. God says this, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. I mean, you, many of you know the Ten Commandments, but if you were asked to recite them, this is the one statistically most often neglected, and this is the source of all the problems. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It's the last commandment. All the others are behavior-oriented, and so if you're doing commandment, like if you're doing a moral inventory, you're like, don't commit adultery, check. You know, don't lie, check. Don't kill, check. Don't steal, check. Nine for nine, right? And you get to 10. You shall not covet neither your neighbor's wife, nor your neighbor's house, nor his servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, or his donkey, nor his tractor, nor his Lexus, nor his uh, book publishing sales, nor, nor, nor his his house size, nor anything. Don't covet. This is the problem, not capitalism or socialism. The life of which we're made, in other words, this is God because he loves us, telling us the life for which we're made is a life of contentment, which is a way of saying it's a life without coveting. This is the last commandment. And then what you, if you fast forward to Romans 7 and you read the Apostle Paul musing on his own spiritual life, Paul explains in Romans 7 that uh, the first, he, he had nailed the first nine and it was the 10th one that undid him, right? Listen to this. I'm reading Romans chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 7. So Romans 7, 7. Here's what Paul says. What shall we say then? Is the law, that's the Ten Commandments he's speaking of, is that sin? No, no, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I didn't know about coveting until the law said, you shall not covet. I thought I was fine until I came to coveting. But sin taking opportunity through that commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, I would say revealed coveting, uh, and, and, and I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, boom, I died. I can't live this life. Why? Because it's in me to covet. That's the problem. So for Paul, coveting reveals the reality of his lostness. In other words, Paul could do outward things really well. He could avoid stealing, avoid killing, avoid lying, avoid sleeping with his neighbor's wife, avoid violating the Sabbath. He could do what I call sin management and knock it out of the park. Uh, in other words, that's a baseball illustration, Moses, just so you know, knock it out of the park. It's like a good thing, right? <laughs> When I speak in Rwanda, I try and be culturally aware, but now I'm going to be aware for you as well. So. He could do sin management. And when he did, he had a great reputation. But hear this, coveting is not an action. It's an attitude. And Paul knew that he, when he's honest, he knows that he can't pull off not coveting. This is a challenge for all of us in the room. Because, like, advertising is built on inflaming what in you? Coveting. That's the whole point of advertising. When you see Matthew McConaughey with his Cadillac, you know, on a football commercial, he's so content and his watch is so shiny and, and he's, he's, you know, he's so, you know, fulfilled. And you're like this, that's the car for me. 
That's, and that's coveting. That's not the car for me, but I have, my own, I have my own forms of coveting. They don't show up in Cadillac commercials. They show up on the ski slopes. When I covet either the skis of another or worse, the talent of another. This is, this is the worst thing of all, right? I consider myself a decent skier and then I skied with Kendi's son last year and he's jumping off cliffs and he's like, come with me. And I go, no, I will not come with you, but I, <laughs> but I will covet. I will covet that skill. I wish I were that good. <laughs> Coveting is a problem, do you see? It comes in many forms. Sex and lust, car and possessions, fame and power, houses, health, location, lifestyle, skills. And when we get discouraged and there's like a vacuum in our lives, many of us fill the vacuum uh, with, with interior covetous thoughts going on, like we're, we're wishing we had something. We even enter into a fantasy about that. And I know, like, I understand, I understand sexual pornography has its, is a huge thing with all kinds of addictive baggage attached to it. Hear me, I'm not diminishing or being dismissive of that, but I would argue in some sense all of us have our own little forms of pornography. It doesn't have to be sexual. Uh, I'll confess to you that when I'm super discouraged, my pornography is I go online and I look at villas in Italy. And I just, and I just fantasize about what it would be like to move to Italy and, and drop out and leave all of you and, and, <laughs> and grow grapes and drink wine and eat pasta, right? It would be beautiful. And I, and, I, and I go down that road and, and I can, you know do a cost-benefit analysis and return on investment and look up contractors. And, and then I go, stop it. This is ridiculous. But it happens to all of us because, because there's a void in us. Augustine said it this way. You, God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Pascal said it this way. There's a God-shaped vacuum in all of us. Bono said it this way, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. So, coveting's the headwaters of our wanting more. And because of that, coveting is the headwaters of porn addictions, sexual predatory behavior, insane credit card debt, debt the hyper-industrialization of the world with all its intended environmental consequences, resource wars, slavery, human trafficking, tribal wars, genocides, the endless supersizing of our lifestyles so that we're always in pursuit of more and bigger and better and faster, FOMO, fear of missing out, carpe diem, addiction to work with all its attendant stress and insomnia and anxiety, all that comes from one thing. There's a, there's a void in me, and until that void is filled with Christ, I will continue to covet. That's the point. The, minimal, uh, the minimalist movement that has taken a foot in, in our own culture, in part, has taken a foot because uh, every once in a while, people have this wake-up call, and they go, wait a minute, what am I doing? Like, endlessly pursuing more possessions that I don't need at the, at the cost and neglect of that which gives me real life. Josh Becker, a friend of mine who runs a minimalist website, the, the whole thing started for him when he was cleaning out his garage in Vermont and his five-year-old son is playing alone in the, in the yard and his neighbor says, uh, hey, why don't you go play with your son? And Josh says, I can't. I got I to gotta deal with all this stuff. And he says, then you have too much stuff. If your son is playing alone and you, and, and you don't have time, deal with it. Yeah, yeah, it's a good word. So, you, I hope you understand here, 
The downward spiral, it all begins with one thing. Exodus 20, 17, it all begins with coveting. It's interior. It all starts there. And why do we covet? Because there's this vacuum in us. There's a hole that will ultimately only be filled by God. So here's the turning point. The turning point then is when we come to the point of being able to say, enough, enough. And some of you know that one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Psalm uh, 73. I'll just read for you this concluding statement of Psalm 73 with a very brief introduction. Asaph is the author, and he's pondering here uh, God's goodness. And this is what he says. Surely God is good to Israel, verse 1, but, 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 he says, there was a time when my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. Why? Look at verse 3. I was envious. I'm looking around, and other people have more. More health. It's in the text. More, more wealth. It's in the text. More, like, life is going well for them. I'm serving God, and, and they have more. And if I can paraphrase Psalm 73, here's what he's saying. What's up with that? As he ponders with God, right? Come on, God, I made a deal with you. Like, I'll serve you, and then, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll have low blood pressure and a, and, a, you know, and a slow pulse and a good HDL, LDL cholesterol ratio and, and a big car and the best skis and life will be good. Oh, come on, I'm serving you. Deliver. You ever think that way? When my heart was embittered, he says, I was pierced within. Bitter, bitter because of coveting. I was, and then he said, I became like a beast. I'm driven to match the lifestyle for which I'm coveting. But then, he says, I came to my senses, and this is his concluding statement. Who do I have in heaven but you? And besides you, he says, I desire nothing on earth. What? I've underlined in my Bible Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. In other words, here we are looking around saying, you know, better skis, faster car, leaner body. And here's God saying, I've given you Christ. I've given you Christ. What more do you want? It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> because if, if you really know Christ, here's the answer, nothing. Christ enough. Not Jesus plus, Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, this requires a different kind of affection than a mere intellectual assent that Jesus is Lord. It requires allowing ourselves to be ravished by the love of Christ. Ravished by the love of Christ. And I will just affirm my brother Moses here and the church in Rwanda, when I've been there in worship services... What's apparent to me is that the people in the community have been ravished by the love of Christ. In other words, Christ has not only affected the intellect, Christ has transformed the entire being, body, soul, and spirit, mind, will, emotions, everything. We uh, were visiting a group in Rwanda entitled, uh, the name of the group was People Living with AIDS. This was some years ago and they've been socially marginalized by virtue of their disease. Uh, but they'd formed a co-op and they were they're growing honey and selling the honey and then they bought a building and it was a remarkable story of development. We're going to visit people living with AIDS. And so our car pulls up the driveway into this building and 
I'll, like, I'll just never forget it. The people came out dancing, surrounded us. They're dancing. And they pull us into the building. They lead us into the building, and they keep dancing. And they dance for 20 minutes. And they made us dance, too. And we're from Ballard. We don't dance. <laughs> and we're dancing with people who, ha who have a, what could easily be like a terminal fatal disease and testimony and testimony and testimony with tears, with joy, with laughter. Every testimony. I'm complete in Christ. Man alive. When will we get there? <laughs> it's a question. Because it's not enough to say, oh yeah, I know Jesus. I got my ticket punched. I'm going to heaven when I die. Until our souls are ravished, there's still a void. And if there's still a void, there's still coveting. Of course we need food and shelter and clothing along the way. But God has said in Matthew 6, you don't have to worry about those things. And he's also said you'll never derive ultimate, ultimate satisfaction from those things. The, the, the life for which you're, uh, you're created must have as its foundation contentment in Christ alone. A, a gift of contentment in Christ is everything. And, and when, you when you live that way, when Christ is your source, I'll just say everything else is a bonus. And then, and then your life can become actually profoundly simple. My wife and I lived in Los Angeles, and then we moved to... Um, Friday Harbor, where, as I say to you, God tricked me into becoming a pastor. We were moving there just for like a very short time, six months or so, and it turned into nearly seven years, uh, and I became a pastor. But the, like when we moved there, the, the salary for the position was below the poverty line, and uh, a, tr a trailer was provided for us to live in. And uh, we moved there. My wife was pregnant with our first child. All three children were born there uh, while we lived on the island. And uh, I would say if you asked our kids, in fact, I, I know this, they would, they would say, yeah, we never felt poor. We never felt poor. Like we'd go, we'd, you know, get on the ferry, we'd go camping. We couldn't afford to stay in a motel. So we'd go camping. I think we still would go camping. Even though we can't afford now a motel, we'd still go camping. Why? Because we watch our kids, you know, uh, not uh, abundant in toys, uh, grab pine cones and make little villages with sticks. And then we'd light a campfire and then they'd say, you know, we're sleeping under the stars or whatever. Oh, Dad, you know, tell us another story. And like I'd make up wild tales about the names of places like where did the name Mazama come from? And then I'd just weave a tail. And then we'd laugh so hard that we spilled our milk. It was fantastic. And you ask our kids, they'd say, oh yeah, we never felt poor. In fact, my son once in this conversation, he said we lived like kings. Like, what do you really need? Love, community, creation. So we felt like kings because who cares? A trailer, poverty wages, and sunsets overlooking the Strait of Juan de Fuca, campfires on the beach, ferry rides, trips to the Cascades. 
This is what Paul meant when he said, owning nothing yet possessing all things. And then I can hear the skeptics among us say, yeah, but you got to live in Friday Harbor. Hey, the same thing's true in Rwanda. People living like kings who are living with AIDS. This woman in uh, the neighborhood uh, where we uh, spent some time, who, like she had the clean water source in her house. And her life was a life of generosity and celebration. I've been in Nepal with this Tibetan refugee woman who ran an orphanage. Immense generosity, immense joy in her poverty. I've been in India uh, and seen the relational wealth of people living in a high-density high environment. And, you know, we'd get in these little taxis and there'd be, it's, it's make good for three and six of us would pile in because they couldn't afford to pay for two taxis. It's six of us would pile in and then we'd go off somewhere. And then I, I remember I came back and I'd purchased a a hat, because it was January, it was cold, and I had this, this hat on, and I said, I got it, it's a good deal. I think I paid like, in, in, in uh, US dollars, I think I said, I paid like 50 cents for this hat, and they all just literally fell on the ground laughing. They were just laughing so hard. Oh, they took advantage of you. Ah, ha, 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 It's like three cents we paid for the same hat. Ah, ha, 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 ha. You know, and they're just laughing, and, they, and I, I share that, because then in the moment, uh, because we were there, because we were visiting, they slaughtered a yak for us. Massively expensive. Like huge generosity out of poverty. How does that happen? Contentment, that's how. And contentment is available anywhere, at any income level. And it's also missing anywhere at any income level. Because the income isn't the problem, it's the heart. So this is why we read Philippians 4. Paul said, he didn't say, I am content. He said, I've learned the secret of contentment. So hear me, as the reality of Christ ravishing my heart fills the void, my capacity for contentment grows. So if this is contentment and this is being filled with Christ, as I'm filled with this reality, Contentment grows. We don't understand it. We think this contentment will grow with the next purchase. No. And this leads us into the, the upward spiral, the upward spiral of generosity. Because here's what happens. When, I, when I'm completing Christ, not just like intellectually, but my soul knows it. Jesus is my best friend. When that happens then 1 Timothy 6, 8 becomes true. Uh, where Paul says, look, if we have food and shelter, then with these, we will be what? Content. Why? I have everything I need. This frees us from worry so that we're able to live literally without fear of the future. Because we've come to believe and even know that God's watching over us, sustaining us, caring for us. This is not a promise of long life or short life. This is a promise of material wealth or, or, or poverty or simplicity. This is a promise of being sheltered by God, cared for by God. And I'm here to tell you this morning the very good news that this promise, God will shelter you, God will sustain you, God will care for you. You can live in this way. I have enough. You can live that way. I'm here to tell you that that is real and available. And so when Christ has ravished my soul, I have contentment. And contentment then empowers me and enables me to live 
as a person of generosity. And this is what Paul demonstrated over and over again, the capacity to live a generous life. And it's been shown in uh, several studies within the United States that those who make less money excel in generosity more than those who make more money. Those who make less money excel in generosity more than those who make more money. This is true not only in America, but in many places in the world. And those who are content in Christ are able to excel even more in generosity. Why? Because your contentment in Christ has changed your consumer habits. And the gaping void that you were trying to fill with season tickets and eating out every night and needing to have the latest phone has now been filled with intimacy with God. It really has been filled. And for some of you, uh, the intimacy is fed through incredible times of prayer and devotion. And for others, the intimacy is fed through deep fellowship and relationships. And for others, the intimacy is fed uh, through being with God and creation. Do you understand? Like how, do, like, how does Christ ravish your soul? For some of you, it's remarkable in the text. For some of you, it's remarkable in fellowship. For some of you, it's remarkable in creation encounters. Now, I'm here to tell you we need all three. We do. But I'm also here to kind of, I want to free up a little bit and, and, and let you know that uh, Christ is revealing himself through all three. And so, if you're not a, like a text expert, I would strongly say don't you know, throw your Bible away. You need to be in the text. But it's okay. If you meet Christ in creation, meet Christ in creation. This was pretty liberating for my wife and I early on in our marriage because I'm the text guy. I'm the text guy. I really I love living in here in my head and... and uh, I tried to impose that on my wife for a number of years, like, read this, learn the Greek, you know? And I'd, like, I'd read stuff. I'd read these authors, and I'd, I'd say, oh, this quote, and I've got tears in my eyes. And she's like this, whatever, what do you want for dinner? <laughs> like, it just didn't even affect her. But then, you know, we live up in the mountains now, and I watch her, I watch her. We go out snowshoeing or hiking or something like that. And I've never seen someone, you know, so absorb the love of God and creation. But really, I'm honoring my wife in sin. I mean, she just, God speaks to her there and in fellowship. We all need all three, but here's the point. Open yourself up so that Christ can kind of ravish you. So that union with Christ leads to a profound sense of contentment. I say to people, here's why I believe. It's not, you know, amazing evidence for the resurrection. It's not some kind of philosophical existential leap. You want to know why I believe? I say, I say this to people. Because Jesus is my best friend, and God's a good father, and every day is Christmas, and God's given me gifts every day. And some days the, the, the gifts come from this text. And some days the gifts come from profound fellowship with other people. And some days the gifts come uh, for, you know, from running around Green Lake at sunset like I did on Friday and seeing the, you know, this crane right there 
with a backdrop of golden leaves as the sun is setting. And I'm like this. Like, what do we need? God's beauty, God's fellowship, God's word, enough contentment. And that contentment then enables us to give. Uh, it results in increased generosity, both time and money. So when you're content, uh, you'll, you'll care for the poor in tangible ways. You'll give generously to your local church. Uh, you'll make space in your lives for people suffering from relational poverty. You'll volunteer in our shelter. You'll, you'll serve at our community meal. You'll serve at our food bank. You, you, you'll have the, 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 the bandwidth uh, to meet the real change person in front of the grocery store and engage in conversation. You will. Why? Because, like, you're now, you have an abundance mentality, and you're able to give. I've seen this all over the world. Seen it in Rwanda. Seen it in Nepal. Seen it in India. Seen it in Austria. When people ask me, why do I go to Austria and teach in December every year? It's not the skiing. It's the party. That's why I go in December. It's a great party. It's the end of the school year, and then the staff has a party. And so we snowshoe to a mountain hut that's been rented just for the staff, and we get there, and then we begin drinking various beverages, and then we sit down, and then uh, soup comes, and then endless plates of meat come until we can't eat anymore, and, 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 and then dessert comes, and then gifts are passed out, and then we learn Austrian dances, and then schnapps comes, and then, and then more gifts are passed out, and then we dance some more, and then, and then somebody looks at their watch and says, oh, it's 1 a.m., should we maybe think about going home? And we started at 6, and the point isn't the meat or the schnapps. The point is the fellowship, the abundance of space to really love one another. And it's born, I mean, these aren't rich people. It's born out of contentment. Generosity leads to abundance, and abundance leads to more generosity, which leads to more generosity. What did Malachi say in chapter 3, verse 10? He says, you want to know my complaint? You want to know how I know you're not doing well? Here's how I know. You're not living generously. And then this is one of the only places in the Bible where God says this, put me to the test. I've posited the entire sermon that generosity is a byproduct of contentment, and now my conclusion is going to be exactly the opposite. As I say to you, if you really want to learn contentment and you're not there yet, understand that contentment is also a byproduct of generosity. How do I know that? Because Malachi says it. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Put me to the test. Hey, you're not giving. Start giving. And see if in your giving, I don't open the storehouse so that you're able to give more and more and more. And in your giving, you will learn that I will provide for you supernaturally. And as I provide for you supernaturally, you will come to believe with every fiber of your being that I, Jesus, am what? Enough. Enough. So start by giving if you're not content. And you'll find Christ to be enough. If uh, uh, you're in that space in your life where you're not yet giving, uh, this is a point of conversation for you and Jesus, for you and your spouse to say, how can, we, how can we live lives of more generosity? And my hope and prayer is that what we've discussed this morning would provoke that discussion 
over lunch and that you with the Holy Spirit can have these conversations to take steps toward contentment and generosity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that your desire for us is a life free of coveting, a life, a life free of this, this itch for more. Utterly contrary to that, your desire is uh, for us to believe that we have freely received and therefore we're living lives freely giving, giving of time, giving of money. Would you lead us here, Father, as families, as individuals, as friends, and as a community in order that we might represent your heart of abundance and simplicity to a desperate world. We pray in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen. Let's worship together.